So let's stand together. We're going to read uh, Exodus 22, verses 1 through 15, and uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the sermon this morning. Exodus 22, 1 through 15. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field. He shall make restitution from the best of the field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he, sh- he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money and, or goods to keep from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured in his or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. Of if him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for his hiring fee. Lord, we come to you now asking for help. Lord, this is not an easy text in one sense. A lot of listing of rules, a lot of listing of guidelines. And there's a sense in which we might find difficulty seeing what it is you want us to see. But Lord, allow your spirit to give us understanding. Lord, may our hearts be teachable. And Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And then, Lord, allow me, messenger, Lord, simply to be your mouthpiece, Lord, that your word, that your gospel truth, Lord, would come uh, resounding through this text to help us, Lord, not only see you afresh, but live our lives for your glory. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. A quick question. Am I coming in? All right? Okay. Um, 
One of my favorite shows to watch on TV um, is a show, oh, you want me to use it is what you're saying, okay. Let's see, it's not on. Okay, now I feel like a real TV preacher. All right, well, one of my favorite shows to watch on TV is the show American Pickers. Anyone watch American Pickers? If you don't know what it's about, it's about two guys by the name of Mike and Frank who drive around the back roads of our country, and they look for homes where they're like pole barns, and, and they're looking for junk, basically, where people have just amassed all sorts of stuff. And they go in there, and they knock on the door, and they're like, hey, you know, we're Mike and Frank, and, and we're here because we're looking for stuff that maybe we can purchase and we can, we can sell on. This is our business and stuff like that. And I like the show because there's a lot of history involved, and they come upon stuff, you know, that's, that's, that's you know, antiques, the, the kind of stuff that's really interesting. Um, but it's also interesting because of the kind of people that they meet, the kind of people they run into. And they go into these homes, and literally, they go into some homes, and you walk in the door, and every room in the home is full of junk. And then outside, they have a pole barn, and you go into the pole barn, and you walk in, and it's just a mass of junk. Someone has just stored stuff through the years and kept it and not gotten rid of it. And friends, I think it's a window into how our society is consumed with its bondage to stuff. Now, stuff is old, and often it's useless. But many people think it still has value. I might be able to use that someday. And some of you are probably nudging each other a little bit here right now. Who knows when it might come in handy, right? Have you noticed that over the last 20 years that the, the storage business has boomed. I mean, it, we, we have, as a church, we have a storage unit on Grove Way. But there's like four storage unit companies right next to each other. Just, they're all over the place. Why? Because people can't get rid of their stuff. They would rather pay $300 a month to store it than to actually sell it or get rid of it. We're so tied to our stuff. And it's probably because we have so much stuff. Now, those who grew up in the Depression, uh, they have a different mindset. For them, everything has value because you didn't have a lot of stuff. And so you took advantage of what you had and you made it work. But that's not what's going on today, is it? Now, today we just want to keep all of our stuff because we can't let it go. We hoard it. We have garages full of junk, sheds, pole barns, storage units. This past Christmas, uh, we were visiting with a family in a nice suburban neighborhood. And I looked over the fence to the neighbor, and I looked over there, and the whole yard was full of junk. And in fact, they had built um, these, these two very, very large sheds to put more junk in. And when you're walking down the street and you're looking into the house, you just see junk all over. And it's really nice, really nice neighborhood. But there's just so much stuff. 
The reality is, friends, too many people are literally stuffed with stuff. Well, our text today goes to the heart of our stuff. And in particular, our attitude toward the stuff or the possessions that we have. But it is in a language that seems distant from us. I mean, when was the last time someone stole your ox or your sheep? When was the last time someone allowed their cattle to graze in your yard? When was the last time that your harvested crop was burned down with fire? When was the last time one of your friends asked you to watch over their donkey while they went on vacation? So these are the examples and the kind of problems that certainly Israel was likely to face in their present context. They were a nation under God's rule who had a constitution that was the Ten Commandments, who were being given now case law in this book of the covenant. And this case law is given so that the, the, the judges that Moses sets up can guide and rule and direct Israel to make the kind of justice that, that needs to take place in the land. But in our context, our possessions are cars, lawnmowers, chainsaws, crockpots, shovels, serving spoons, speaking to a church here, okay, casserole dishes, Golf clubs, playstations, camping chairs, canopies, computers, cell phones. It's, it's, it's different stuff. But the principle is the same. Now, the world doesn't understand God's way of thinking. In fact, what God says here, the world is going, to, is going to say, this is foolish and this is naive. Why? Because the world is measured in large part by their possessions. How much money they have, what kind of house they live in, what kind of car they drive, what kind of clothes they wear, what, you know, the, the blinginess of their jewelry. All of these things are, are cultural measurements. And possessions, friends, drive our society, and they can drive us to think and speak in ways and to behave in ways that run contrary to God and his kingdom. And so far in the book of, uh, of the covenant that we've been looking, that's chapter 21 through 23, uh, we, we've looked at really two areas under one heading, and that is how we treat other people. In fact, the first section, if you remember, talked about slaves, and if you remember that section on slavery, it wasn't so much about the African trade type of slavery. It was the, that was the kind of slavery where you, you voluntarily put yourself under a, a, a master, a master of a household. Now, sometimes that happened because uh, you had debt and you couldn't pay it off. Sometimes it was part of a punishment for committing a crime, but that's what was going on there. And then last week, we really looked at a section that looked at people in general, and the idea there was that God values the sanctity of all human life, whether that's slave or free or men or women or born or unborn or boss or employee, God values human life. Now, today, we're going to shift our focus and focus on the subject of how we treat our property. What happens when our property is stolen? 
What happens when it's damaged? What happens when it is borrowed? And to do that, we want to look at our text under three headings. We're going to look, first of all, at some principles that are going to guide us, some principles we're going to repeat that we learned the last couple of weeks, and then some specific ones for the text today. Then we're actually going to take the time and walk through the rules. And then once we've done that, we're going to actually see how how this relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it does. And in each case, we want to see the implications of the resounding theme of peace that is shouting at us from this text. Now, you don't see it yet because I haven't shown it to you yet, but it is there, and you will have to trust me. And so we'll begin this morning by looking at the principle of peace. And we're going to look, first of all, at general principles, principles that we've been learning, and then some specific principles. So what are some general principles that we need to remind ourselves of? We've considered this already, and and I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of. First of all, God expects his children to behave in a certain way, doesn't he? Since these rules are being given as case law that flows out of the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, it is clear that God expects his children to think, to talk, and to behave in a way that reflects that he is their Lord and Master. In other words, our beliefs bear fruit in consistent behavior. Or to put it differently, our orthopraxy must reflect our orthodoxy. That's the first one. Secondly... God expects his children to take responsibility for their actions. This is what God's people do. We are responsible for our actions and therefore we take responsibility for what we think, say, and do. So if we've acted badly toward our neighbor, we must admit it, face it, and be willing to live with the consequences. We must not seek to blame others, uh, our circumstances, or even the devil for what is truly our own personal responsibility. Again, that runs contrary to the society in which we live. Third, God expects his laws to be applied equally to all. Did you know that this message of equality finds its source in God first? He wants his laws to apply equally to all. So everyone is equal. No one is above or beyond the law. The rich or the poor, men and women, slave or free, master or employee, everyone is expected to treat one another with dignity, love, and respect. These are just basic principles that flow out of what we looked at so far. And then fourth is this. The punishment should fit the crime. Lex talionis. That was that that law of the tooth that we looked at last week. And there, a faithful judge will consider the evidence because there's a lot of variables in in things that happen, right? And that faithful judge will consider the evidence and, and, and meet out a punishment that truly fits the crime that has been committed. It should not be too, too excessive or not be too lenient. So this is by means of reminder, but this helps us even as we look at our text today. So once we've looked at these general principles, now let's consider the specific principles, what this text is teaching us. Now, I would like to to begin with the first one, and that is this, the principle of private property. In other words, the principle of private property here is assumed 
The very fact that God is giving rules regarding the restoration of property indicates that God is perfectly fine with his people owning property. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that people owning property is normal, it's natural, it's right. So it is not an evil to own property, something that communism or socialism seem to have forgotten. So when things are stolen, hear this, it is not greedy to want to get your stuff back. In fact, in God's economy, you should be compensated. What property did Israel have at this point as God is giving out this case law? All they had was what God had given them as they left Egypt. And if you remember, God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. Actually, what happens was the Egyptians said, look, take this, take this, take this, and get out of here. That's how it worked out. That's all they had. That's all the stuff that they owned. So the spoils of Egypt. And so this case law isn't just for the Israelites' immediate context. It's also for future generations. And you're going to see these principles fleshed out even later uh, in the Word of God. Now, there are three main attitudes that people typically have toward wealth or possessions today. The first one we'll call it diabolical. What's yours is mine. I'll take it. All right? We don't like that one. That's not good. The second attitude is American. What's mine is mine. I'll keep it. Right? Uh, the third attitude is biblical. What's mine is God's. I'll share it. And it's not all that difficult to know which attitude our text is urging us to take. Now, there was a story of a pastor who was invited to dinner at the home of a wealthy uh, Texan who, who owned a lot of property and, and had, uh, had become uh, prosperous over time. And after the meal, uh, the host uh, took the, the pastor to a location on the property where there was a good view, and he, he looked over all the oil wells on his property across the landscape, and he boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. And then he looked in the opposite direction at the sprawling fields of gray, and he said, that's all mine. And then turning east toward the uh, huge herds of cattle, he bragged, and there, those are all mine. And then pointing to the west and a beautiful forest, he explained, that is too all mine. And he paused, expecting the pastor to compliment him on his great successes. And instead, the pastor placed one arm on his shoulder and took the other arm and pointed heavenward. And he said, and how much do you have in that direction? And he bowed his head and confessed, I never thought of that. We can amass all sorts of possessions here. And it's not wrong to have them. But ultimately, God is more concerned with this possession. So the, the principle of private property, this is critical. It's going to flow out of what we're going to look at today. But then there's the principle of peace. And I'm bringing everything down kind of to a head here. What we don't see in the English translation 
is the emphasis of peace in this passage. There are words used in our text that have the root of the word peace in them. And do you know what the Hebrew word for peace is? Anyone want to guess? Shalom. The words that I'm talking about are pay, repay, and restitution. They are words that bring about shalom. They're words that bring about peace. Let's look through our text, and I want you to, I want you to see these words. I'm going to read them. They're up on the screen, but, but just if you look in your Bibles as I'm going through here. In verse 1, repay. Verse 3, surely repay. In, in the Greek, or sorry, in the Hebrew, it's literally shalom, shalom. In verse 4, pay double. Verse 5, restitution. Verse 6, full restitution. Again, shalom, shalom. Verse 7, pay double. Verse 9, pay double. Verse 11, not make restitution. Verse 12, make restitution. Verse 13, not make restitution. Verse uh, 14, make restitution. Verse 15, make restitution. In fact, even before our text, a couple of verses and after our text, a couple of verses, that same theme, that same word is used. It is screaming at us. It's like a, it's like a symbol banging and banging and banging and saying, I want you to see that what I'm looking for is shalom, that what I'm looking for is peace. Now, what does shalom mean? What, how, how is it played out? What, what are we thinking through here? It has the idea of peace. It has the idea of restoration. It has the idea of making things right. It has the idea of correcting. It has the idea of mending what is broken. It has the idea of reconciling. So what this text is screaming at us is that this peace is what should drive our relationships with others, in particular, when it involves our stuff. And we can say it in a couple of different ways. And here's the proposition for our text. What we find here is the peace we must pursue as we steward God's property. It's all his. But there's an attitude that he wants us to have as we carry out being faithful stewards of his stuff. And that attitude is an attitude of shalom. It's an attitude of peace. We should pursue peace with his stuff. Now, the problem is that we are so connected to our stuff, we don't view God's property to be used for his glory. We view it as our property to be used for our glory, right? This is the wrestling match we have. And when that is the case, God's desire for an attitude of peace is in jeopardy. And God is calling us to be faithful stewards of all the stuff that he gives us with a heart that is always pursuing shalom. Now, having looked then at the principles of peace, let's jump into the rules for peace. And we're going to see how this now plays out. Now, you remember... The story of David and Bathsheba, horrible story, uh, where he commits adultery with her, and then uh, seeking to cover up his sin, um, he, he pr proceeds to lie and gets her husband to come back from the battle and ultimately uh, creates a way where he can be murdered in battle, so somewhat, you know, 
somewhat, you know, underhandedly without other people knowing except for the person who's carrying it out. And, of course, God knew everything that was going on. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And here's the parable that David, or that Nathan gives David. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. You know this pretty well. So just listen as I read. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought or bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, my point in walking through that is this. Where do you think David came up with the idea? He came up with the idea of restoring the lamb fourfold from our very text. See, even David understood that what he had done was sinful and wrong, but he also understood the law even for this parable. And so what we want to see as we walk through our text here are really three areas, um, three ways that this text breaks down, the law breaks down. First of all, there's the robbery of property the robbery of property, or the stealing of property. And first of all, we have kind of a general example, a general case law. If a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or, or, or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four for sheep. So the, the principle is this. The penalty is based on the loss um, uh, or the harm caused to the victim. In other words, how did the loss of this thing affect the victim? And, and that's why there's some, some different, I want to say, results or different kind of repayments here. Losing an ox caused more harm than the owner losing a sheep. See, an ox was worth more than a sheep. Remember, in, in that ancient culture, one's wealth was based on the kinds of cattle that you had. Some cattle, like an ox, um, were, were critical for the life of a family because they were working animals. Without an ox, you couldn't plow a field. You couldn't move things around. Uh, sheep typically don't do that kind of stuff. They just kind of wander around and eat your grass, right? Different kinds of animals, different kinds of value. And so the ox, um, even the ox was typically kept in a pen or tied up somehow, whereas the, the sheep were often you know, left to wander. So different situations. And so in this case, shalom restoration takes place when the ox is replaced with five oxen and the sheep is replaced with four sheep. You say, okay, that, that makes sense, I guess. You know, you're replacing it. But here's the basic principle. When something is stolen, simply finding the stolen animal doesn't satisfy justice, which in this case is shalom, which is peace. No, it must be returned plus 
something. And in this case, the plus something is five oxen or four sheep. And I try to think through, how could this relate to us today? And I thought, well, it would be like you being a tradesman and having a work truck that you parked in your driveway that has all your stuff and your tools in it. Now, they're the tools that you need in order to sustain your life, to do the job that you needed to do. Now, set aside the fact that in today's culture, we have this thing called insurance, which can really abuse things. Just throw that out. Imagine someone stole that truck from you. You couldn't just go out and buy another truck. It's not like, well, I, I got myself $35,000. Just go out and buy another truck. No big deal. And pay for all the tools. No, you, that was, that's your livelihood. This is what you had to work with. Now, if the truck were found, it might be damaged, and some of your tools might be gone. If you found the thief, you should be compensated not just for the truck and the tools, but also for the time you've lost and the equipment that was stolen. So the, the principle uh, you know, remains and continues. It's, it's, it's the, the actual thing that was taken plus something, and the something can be quite a bit. So it's not just about the property. It's not just about replacing the property. The issue is that stealing took place. There was a, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And now there's a lack of peace between you and your neighbor as well as with your relationship with God. Your brother thief would have to repay for his, or for his crime above and beyond what was stolen based on this Italian law. The punishment should fit the crime. And if the thief could not pay, then he was placed in service as a slave based on what we looked at a couple of weeks ago until he could pay it off or he worked out those six years. Now, what might surprise you is that there is no provision in this case law for a prison system. There's, there's no provision for a prison system in the economy of Israel. I mean, let's just think about this seriously. What were they going to do? Build a big tent and have people stay in a big tent and then actually have people that were going to be soldiers around the big tent to, to feed them and provide for them? and all. No, no. What the, the system said the criminal was going to go back into the populace, but there were going to be some restrictions and regulations, and they would actually have to carry out their responsibility as servant slaves. So in God's economy, they pay off their crime by doing work under the master of a household. So there is repaying that is more than what was stolen. In this case, five for an ox, four for a stolen sheep. So that's the general robbery. Let's move now to the next one. We, we move in now to something I think is really important and helpful for us, and that is breaking and entering. It involves this breaking and entering, and, and, and it's divided really into two sections. If you break and enter at night or if you do it during the day. And there's different applications of law that take place in both situations. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. You read on, it talks about, but if the sun is risen. And so you realize that what's being said uh, here is actually it's, this is happening at night. So if a robber comes into your home uh, or your tent at night, and the homeowner encounters him and strikes him so that he dies, the homeowner is not guilty of murder. He's acting in self-defense 
to protect his family and his property. And because of the darkness, he cannot make judgments about, uh, you know, who this person is and what they're there to do or what their intent is. It's pitch black. I mean, in that economy, you know, you have someone breaking into your tent. You're like, hold on while I get this lamp lit so I can find out who it is. It doesn't work that way. You're responding to say, I'm going to protect my stuff. I'm going to protect my family. Who are you? What are you doing in here? Now, it's not saying, you know, if someone comes into your tent, just kill them. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying as you, as you deal with this person, this perpetrator, if the person dies, you, as the homeowner, are not guilty of blood guilt. Now, this might seem pretty severe, but it would be a deterrent to any would-be nighttime robber. Now, in our context... Uh, we have the castle doctrine, and we have stand your ground that gives specifics to what a homeowner can do to protect their family and their possessions when a thief comes in to steal. The point is, your home is considered your castle, and you have certain rights to stand your ground and to defend yourself, and that's different based on state to state to state. But that doesn't mean that deadly force is necessary. And this is one of the issues. Just because someone comes into your home doesn't give you the excuse to pull out your rifle and shoot them. That, you might say, well, I have the right. Well, yeah, but there's, there's much more nuances in the law than that. Why? The reason is, is because God values human life. Stuff is stuff. Life is sacred to God. Even a criminal's life. Okay? Now, in fact, even from what I understand in doing some research this week, if you live in a two-story home and you sleep upstairs and some, some thieves come in downstairs, they take your TV, they take your stereo, they take, I don't know, all your iPads and computers out, and they don't go upstairs, that is treated as a different kind of crime than if they went upstairs where your family is. Because when you're, they're upstairs now, they are threatening people, whereas downstairs, a separate part of the dwelling, is not considered to be as severe a crime. My, my point here is there are nuances, okay? And it takes wisdom, then, to apply this Talian law that says the punishment should fit the crime. But again, in the ancient world where the nights are dark and there's no electricity, there's no flashlights to help the owner identify the intruder, the thief died. If that happened, he was not found guilty. But notice now, Verse 3, but if the sun had risen on him, there should be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. In other words, if a person dies when he is breaking in during the day, you had no right to kill someone. In fact, you, you, could, you could flee the scene and make sure that person's life was still, you know, they were still alive. You did not have the right to defend and to kill someone who's coming into your home. That's, that's what's going on here. Why? Again, because their soul is considered more valuable than your property. At every opportunity, God's people must consider the value of human life. And like, as we began our service today, Ed was talking about what we were reflecting on last week, and that is the value of human life in the womb. And there's a tendency in our American culture to value that, but then to be gun-toting when it comes to people who are criminals entering into our property. We still need to value human life. Now, if the robber is subdued and caught, he's required to pay. 
He's, he's required to make peace, to make shalom. All right? There's supposed to be restoration. That's the goal here. It's always the goal of restoration. If he doesn't have the money for his punishment, then he is sold into slavery like we talked about before. If the stolen animal is found, then the payment will be double. And again, the principle of peace or restoration is always return the property plus something, and that will be determined by a judge. And friends, this is the kind of stuff that our headlines are full of. There are conflicts and challenges that are often, if not usually, divisive and controversial. We want to defend all life. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. So how do we figure out each situation? Well, we ask questions like, was force necessary? In other words, was the sun down or was it up? Was someone's life in imminent danger? Can they be excused for fighting back? Was there something that happened by whoever it is that created the conflict to get even worse? Or is it more like when the sun is up? Are there, could there have been a, another way that they handled this? Where, where there are other options or avenues available so that a life would not be lost. Again, the life being lost is really the ultimate issue here as we're looking at the consequences. Now, it might sound easy. It might sound complex to you. But these principles are similar to the principles that undergird our present legal system. Now, friends, hear this. If a robber flee, flees your home with some of your stuff, you can't chase them down and shoot them. you would be considered then a, a, a murderer because you pursued them when you didn't have the right to do that. You didn't have the right to take the law into your own hands like that. And it comes from a passage like this. So we have robbery of property. Secondly, we have the destruction of property. What we need to read carefully what we'll see here is that this is not a natural phenomenon. Um, this is actually, both of these examples are the result of negligence. First of all, there's negligent grazing. This is an illustration from the world of livestock. If a man causes a, fi a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose. You see that, those, those words, causes and lets? In other words, there's intent here. This isn't just, this just happened. No, he, he's, 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 I have no problem with it, right? So he lets his beast loose. It, it feeds on another man's field. He shall make restitution, there's that word again, shalom, peace, from the best of his own field and his own vineyard. So again, this, this word's cause and lets. And, and in order to make restitution, he then is to offer not the scrawny patch on his property, but the best patch, best field, best vineyards. In other words, he is to suffer loss of the best of his property to bring satisfaction and restoration and to make peace, to make shalom. Again, the goal here is the restoring of the relationship when these things happen. Secondly, we have this negligent fire. This is an illustration from the world of agriculture. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns, 
so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. Now, in order to understand this illustration, we, we need to take into consideration how things worked in a more agrarian context. It might seem strange that the rule talks about thorns catching fire. Now, we typically, uh, you know, when we, we, we live in here in California. We have fences everywhere. Back in this economy, they, they weren't building these wooden fences out in the wilderness. What they would do is they would gather up the thorny bramble, and they would actually make areas of protection with the thorny bramble, and they would put up their fields. They would plant grain, whatever, and when it was time for harvest, they would gather the harvest, and they would put it to the side next to the thorns. And so the picture here is of a neighbor who starts a fire and is not paying attention to the fire, is, is negligent. They're, they're not mindful of what's going on. And the thorns catch fire. And the thorns catch fire. And then from the thorns, the fire leaps now to the grain. Well, of course, that's the livelihood of these people. Well, the person who was negligent, the person who started the fire, was responsible then to make shalom. They were to take responsibility for their actions. Now, it could have been an accident. What I mean by that, a gust of wind, where they thought they were in perfect proximity and nothing would happen, but a gust of wind takes the fire over and it catches. You're still responsible. Okay, so the, the idea here then is that there still is a need for shalom, even in issues of the destruction of property. Let's look at the last section here, the custody of property, the custody of of property. We've looked at robbery. We looked at the destruction of property. Now we're looking at property given to someone for safekeeping, to put in their custody, um, which was a common practice in the ancient world. Why? Well, there weren't banks. Um, There's no safe deposit boxes. There were no public storage units that had locks on them, right? Uh, so what, when people traveled, uh, you know, they had to go somewhere. They, would, they, they wouldn't be able to take all their stuff. And so they would leave their, their most valuable possessions with a friend, with a neighbor. And when they returned, if their belongings were still there, which is what they would expect, everything was fine. But if something happened to them, and I put that in quotes, um, while they were gone, well, God has laws to cover such situations. So first of all, we'll talk about stolen goods. And here we have a general case law under this heading. If a man gives to his neighbor money, goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then there's two possibilities. First of all, the thief is found. If the thief is found, he shall pay double. This is, this is the standard general thing that we've already seen so far, right? The thief is found, and he then has to pay double for what he took. All right, shalom required that he go above and beyond uh, by at least two times. But unfortunately, criminals are not always caught, are they? So if the thief is not found, well, what's going to happen now? Well, let's consider what it says, verse 8. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The idea of coming near to God means you're going then to those rulers, those judges, the elders, you might want to say, of that town, and they are going to be the ones that will be the judges. 
that they are going to be the ones who make a careful investigation of what happened. Because it says here, for every breach of trust, whether it is an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, or cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. There's a breach of trust. Shalom restores the breach of trust. You get this? This is the goal. God is establishing laws. He's establishing rules to bring about shalom, restoration, reconciliation, making things right. Well, they make a careful investigation. If they, if they find out that the friend was actually a thief, then he had to make double restitution. If they found him innocent or they were unable to make any determination, then he had to settle um, for simply leaving it with God. Now, imagine you go away for a month and you ask a close friend to watch over your house. And when you come home after that month, you, you realize that everything's in order except the 70-inch smart TV that you had in your living room was missing. And so you call your friend and they come over and, and, and they say to you, yes, everything seems to be in order. The only issue is that about three weeks ago, we noticed that your 70-inch TV was missing. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't notice anything else that was gone. We didn't think too much of it. It must just have been stolen. Um, sorry about that. Uh, now you might be a little miff at the kind of casual and cavalier attitude that your good friend that you left in charge of your home has. Um, well, two weeks later, your friend invites you over to watch the Super Bowl, and when you get to the house, you notice that they have a new 70-inch smart TV, and it looks just like yours. And you ask, hey, you know, I, I noticed that you have a new 70-inch smart TV, just like the one I had in my home that was stolen. And they say, yeah, 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 funny you should mention that. Uh, while we were there, you know, watching over your house, we noticed that we liked your TV so much that we decided to go out and get one for ourselves. We love it. Would you, would you like some more chicken wings? Um, now, you might be tempted to blow a stack and jump to a quick conclusion that your friend stole your TV, but because you know that God has called you to pursue shalom with your neighbor, you choose to wait and take it to God. So after the game, uh, you ask a follow-up question. Hey, friend, I, I'm really struggling. You're, you're a good friend of mine. I trust you with my stuff. I'm, I'm thinking that the TV that was in my house is the same TV that we just watched the Super Bowl on. I want to believe you, and I want to be at peace with you. So can I ask you a pointed question in the presence of God? Notching it up now. Uh, and, 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 and can you say with a clear conscience before me and before God, and in fact, uh, um, I brought Pastor Rod and the elders to witness this, um, that you are telling me the truth that this TV is not actually my TV and that you didn't steal it. See, this, this is what's happening here. When it says, and we're actually going we're gonna to turn to God, we're going we're gonna to come to God. We're coming to the presence of God to resolve this conflict and to bring about shalom. 
See, the point is no longer about the property. It's not about the TV anymore. Now the issue is, will this person speak the truth before God? If they lie before God, then they have God to deal with. If they cannot lie before God because they have a God-centered conscience, then they will admit their guilt and need uh, to restore the TV twofold. And now you'll have a 70-inch screen TV in your living room and your bedroom, all right? But you get the point here. What God is saying is when you come to God, it notches things up because you then have to declare in the presence of people that are representing God, I didn't steal it. And if you lie, because people do, you may actually be lying. And everyone else may know that you're lying. But what's more important is that you're lying to God and letting the weight of that settle in. And so we must be willing at times to suffer loss for the sake of what God is doing. Do you see how this idea of shalom drives God's people to live in harmony with each other? Now, you've probably used a form of this principle in your parenting. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. You're busy doing something important like washing the dishes or cooking dinner or watching TV or playing video games on your phone. And suddenly you hear wailing and gnashing of teeth coming from one of your children's bedrooms. So being the attentive parent, you get up and you go to investigate. And when you arrive, you find one child on the floor in tears and they say, she stole my Barbie doll. The one you gave me for Christmas. And so you turn to your other child and she says, I didn't steal it. She left it on the floor in my room and I was just giving it back. She's lying. And the other child says, no, you weren't. You stole it and you won't give it back. So the other child says, you're just a crybaby. Here's your dumb Barbie doll. I don't want it. Now, at this point, as the parent, you really don't know what happened. You ever been there? You don't know if one child left the doll in the other child's room. You don't know if the other child stole the doll. And you don't know who's lying and who's telling the truth. And so you think, what should I do? And if you're the husband, the answer is easy. Honey! That's right, it's the easy answer. But if you're wanting to resolve this biblically... You come up with a plan, and you say, okay, we're going to bring this to God, and we're going to let him decide. And so you sit your children down, and you say, now remember, God saw everything that you did or didn't do. God knows what happened, and he doesn't like little girls to lie to him. In fact, if you do lie to God, Things won't go well for you, right? You're, you're, you're laying it down heavy and thick because you want them to feel the fear and the presence of God. And possibly knowing that they are in the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing God, their little hearts will crumble and confess to the truth. That doesn't always happen. Now let me remind you what Israel had just experienced and said in the latter part of chapter 20, and why what's happening here is so important. They say to Moses, chapter 20, verse 19, Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. 
but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see, they knew what it was to come before God because they had encountered God on the mountain there. This is no light, small thing. And Israel, when it's time to, to come to God and be accountable to God, this was no small thing. This was weighty stuff. Are you telling the truth or are you not telling the truth? Can you put your hand on the Bible and say, I am telling the truth before God? That's what matters the most. And friends, you feel the weight of that. So these are stolen goods. Secondly, there's these dead, injured, or stolen animals. I'm not going to read all of this, but it says, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or driven away without anyone seeing it. So we have this, this idea of, of this person has to accept this oath. Again, he's coming to, uh, b- before God. The man who suffers loss had to take his friend at his word, and no restitution was required. Friends, sometimes, sometimes the only thing we can do is to leave it to the Lord and let him handle it. He can and he will bring about justice. People and relationships are more important than property. See, shalom is the goal. Restoration is the goal, and sometimes you as the person who have been offended or you don't know what the solution or the answer is, you just have to say, okay, Lord, it's now in your hands. I've asked the right questions. I'm not going to be consumed over anymore. Now, friends, in one sense, that's just common sense, isn't it? But if it's stolen, there's a need for restitution on the part of the the one who's keeping it safe. In other words, this person who is supposed to be uh, holding your stuff in custody, keeping it safe, if it's stolen, the, the language in the text here seems to indicate that the one keeping the animal knew that it was stolen but really didn't do anything about it. In that case, they assume the responsibility for the restitution. And then finally here, if the animal was torn by beasts, then you would find the evidence of, of, of that. I mean, it's pretty clear, yeah, this animal's been eaten up. It's not my fault. These things happen with animals in particular. And finally, if we look down at, at verse 14, we have this last one, and that is injury or death of something borrowed. If a man borrows anything of his neighbors and it's injured and dies, the owner, sh- uh, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner is with it, he shall make no restitution. You're not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for his hiring fee. Just highlight these again, stating it a little differently, hopefully clearer. If you borrow something and the owner is with you, he's still responsible. If you borrow something and the owner is not with you, you're responsible. If you hire something, the hiring fee pays for the damage that occurred. In other words, the damage is all bound up in the fee that you're paying for. That's, that's what's going on here. Now, throughout this, guys, is this theme of shalom. The answer, the goal, the, the, the payment, the restoration is shalom, 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 shalom. Restore peace. I want to live at peace with my neighbor. I want to live at peace with my friend, that person that, you know, that accidentally did something. I want to live at peace with him. So here's some, some, I would say, some more contemporary examples. If you borrow someone's hardbound book and you lose it, 
or it gets destroyed, replace it. Not with a paperback one, but with a hardbound copy and maybe an Amazon gift card. If you visit someone's home and one of your children knocks over a vase and breaks it, you need to pay for it and maybe for some flowers to go in it. If your dog digs up your neighbor's prized roses, you need to replace them and then buy them some tulips or daffodils as well. If you borrow a friend's saw and you break it, you need to replace the broken tool along with some extra bits and blades. It's this principle of restoration plus something, right? You're going above and beyond. Why? Because you don't, the issue isn't just replacing the thing. The issue is being restored to your neighbor, being in shalom with your neighbor. But when we're so consumed with our stuff, we're not concerned then about shalom. We're concerned about stuff. Now, again, this is all common sense. Common sense, common decency. And unfortunately, it's not something that is commonplace in our society. Why would God's people do this by going the extra mile to make peace with their neighbor? Because our property is first God's property. And here is the principle to consider. How you manage all of your possessions, whether they be yours or others, how you manage all of your possessions is good measure of who or what is reigning in your heart. If your stuff reigns in your heart, you will use people to get more stuff. If you have been redeemed by Christ, then your stuff is the substance that God will use for his kingdom. So that stuff that you have, that car that you have, that cell phone that you have, that house that you have, yeah, it's, it's yours. God has given it to you. There's nothing wrong with having that property, but just remember, it's also God's, and it's first and foremost God's. And you will be held accountable for what you're doing with that stuff for his glory. I mean, just some quick applications just flowing out of this then, right? Number one, we're called to pursue peace with our fellow man, right? Secondly, we're called to go the extra mile. Third, we're called to put people above property. Now we move into the gospel of peace. Having looked at these rules that are to guide us to live our lives with shalom, well, this has some real gospel implications, doesn't it? Because this gospel of peace is a peace that comes by way of salvation. It's the peace with God. It's that vertical peace. It's also the peace that comes by way of sanctification, which is peace with man. It's a horizontal peace. So let's look, first of all, at this salvation, this, this peace that Christ brings. And you're going to see some verses up on the screen but here we have Jesus that is speaking to his disciples about his eventual departure and is leaving them uh, the Holy Spirit. And he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. A little later in John's gospel, he records Jesus saying, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans 5.1, the Apostle Paul, speaking about our conversion, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, friends, this, this idea of peace, this idea of shalom, this idea of, of restoration is at the heart of the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ comes to do for us by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross. And then in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us what happens when the peace of Christ comes. Ephesians 2, 13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And he goes on to, to talk about how this peace reconciles Jews and Gentiles, reconciles sinners to God. Now, friends, the good news of peace is that when Christ died and shed his blood uh, for, for sin, um, the, the, this enmity um, was overcome by virtue of what he did on the cross. So I just want to emphasize here that peace is at the heart of the gospel, and it's a peace, it's a shalom that God does for us and accomplishes on the cross. But that, that transaction then produces in God's children something else, and this is sanctification. Not only does Christ bring peace, but he promotes peace. We are to be people who are living out this shalom, this kind of peace. First of all, it's a settled peace. In other words, it's, it's a peace that affects our hearts. Listen to these verses, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's something settled there, right? There's something that's affecting your hearts now. Christ has done this for you. Reconciliation has taken place. And now you can be settled in that peace. And then Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So this peace then affects and fashions and shapes our heart so that we're settled with a certain attitude, a certain perspective. But it's also then a strategic peace in our relationships. Again, the Apostle Paul gives us these verses. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. I mean, it's right at the heart of what God is calling us to do as we live. Romans 14, 19. Again, this is the practical application side of the book of Romans. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upholding. Now, we are to be people who are pursuing peace, not just demanding our rights, but pursuing restoration, making things right, going above and beyond to make sure that those relationships are restored. Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, 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 the unity that people often talk about comes about when we are people who are committed to peace. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all, uh, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and, 
and dignified in every way. Again, this is his peaceful. This should be our character. This is what we should be, you know, this is, this is what we should be living out, fleshing out. Why? Because we have been reconciled to God. That, that brokenness has been reconciled. We offended him, but he, by virtue of the cross, has reconciled us. He has brought peace. And we have the peace now that's fashioning and shaping us so that we can be people who are living out peace. So this commitment to shalom is the fruit of shalom that we receive by the blood of the cross. We embrace it, we rest in it, and we pursue it. Now, I just want to draw your attention as we bring things to a close here uh, to a man that you know very, very well, and his name is Zacchaeus. If we grew up in church, we probably have the Zacchaeus song drilled into the long-term memory banks of our mind. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I'm sorry if I'm bringing that back to you and you haven't thought about it for years, but not only was he a wee little man, he was also a horrible sinner with a terrible reputation in his community. He was a Jewish man who served the Roman governments by collecting the taxes of the people, but he would use his position to tax the, the, the people more. In other words, when Rome was requiring 10 shekels, he would charge 20 shekels. And the people knew it, but there was nothing they could do about it. It was extortion. One commentator said that Zacchaeus was the kingpin of Jericho. Of Jericho's tax cartel, I should say. He had strong men who would go out for him to collect the monies. But one day, Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus, right? Jesus comes into town. Here's what happens. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho, this is Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus or who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received, he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, right? What is Jesus doing with this guy? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, now hear this. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. What? Fourfold. You see where he's getting this from. See, now, now the reason I wanted to draw your attention to this, because Jesus says here, you know, today salvation has come to this house. That this response is a response of repentance. This is what happens when God radically changes people from being sinners and brings them into a new relationship with him, and now they're citizens of his kingdom. New attitudes enter into our hearts, and, and here's Zacchaeus, a Jew, probably learned this stuff growing up, and it probably was just kind of like, you know, Stuff he had to learn but didn't pay any attention to. But now he understands what he has done is wrong. And the way to restore it is to apply the principle of shalom. And to restore fourfold. 
I will do what I have to do to make sure that my relationship with these people that I have offended has been restored. I'm not just going to give them back what I stole. I'm going to give them back four times what I stole because I want them to know that I was wrong and that I defrauded them and I sinned against them, but I want to be at peace with them. Friends, our time is up. But I would ask you to consider this. I'd ask you to consider any issues in your life where there needs to be restoration. And I would challenge you to go above and beyond maybe what you're thinking. To lay it on lavishly that you want restoration for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. We have considered much. We've considered, Lord, just the, the, the content of this text. But, Lord, we, when we step back and we think about what it is that you have done for us, Lord, how you lavishly gave yourself as that sacrifice once for all. And in doing that, Lord, you brought about a shalom, a peace, a, a restoration, a completeness, a making something right. Lord, there was no way that, that we could earn any kind of money to satisfy the debt that we had before you. But you came and in one act restored us to yourself. And Lord, because of the cross, we are now at peace with you. It's so amazing, Lord. It's so amazing that through, through a text that deals with property, that, that there's this theme, Lord, that just rises up and points to you. We are truly, Lord, humbled by what you've done for us. And we ask now, Lord, as we, as we take time to reflect on what you have done for us on the cross and the peace that you have accomplished. Lord, that we would be mindful of the fact that you gave your body, that you shed your blood. And Lord, the implications of that. And Lord, help us now just to, to, to step back and to marvel as we now celebrate, um, Lord, this, this Lord's Supper that you instituted for us. We ask now in your precious name. Amen.